Well, greetings from the States of our Primitive Baptist Church. Uh, what a blessing it is to be with you this morning. Uh, and I greet you and I'm excited about you being with us because this begins the first service of our annual spring revival, our spring meeting. And uh, it's an abbreviated service somewhat this year because of the pandemic and the sheltering and in that we're going through and the precautions that we're trying to take for health reasons. But it has nothing to do with the spiritual meaning of being together to worship. And I'm so glad you could be with us. It will be abbreviated somewhat this year because of that and that we'll have three services um, beginning this morning at 1030. There will be a service uh, Monday evening at 7 p.m. and one Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. So we look forward to uh, you praying for these meetings and uh, your presence. Call somebody, uh, text them, email them, Facebook them, let them know that this is how we're gathering. And we pray and desperately want God to bless us and help us feel his spirit and uh, learn about him through the preaching of his precious, precious word. I believe that we're in a situation in our world today, in spite of the situation that we're in, that hinders and has gotten most of us out of our comfort zone, to say the least. Uh, yet the gospel has more meaning now than it's ever been before. I believe that we're in a situation that we have a platform of the gospel of God uh, that we haven't had in a long, long time, especially in the Primitive Baptist Church. And so I'm just really thankful that, that God has blessed us to have this. And I pray that we'll make the most of it and that God would be glorified. We're really, really thankful today that Elder Bill Durrance, W.H. Bill Durrance, is our guest preacher. And he is a man that has been committed to God for a long time. He and his wife, Vanna, uh, though they live in Brooklyn, served at Albany Primitive Baptist Church in Oak Park, Georgia. And Brother Bill will come in a few minutes and be delivering this message this morning and then bringing it to uh, other messages on Monday evening and Tuesday evening. So pray for Brother Bill and lift him up. Uh, I know that as you think about his ministry, and many of you know him and uh, serve churches that he served or in churches that he served, and how blessed you are and have been to know Brother Bill. Uh, Brother Bill served the Statesboro Primitive Baptist Church, this very church, for about 12 years. And I was thinking, coming up here, I, I'm sure, I don't, I don't have all the records, but I, I would imagine without a doubt those 12 years under the ministry of Elder Bill Durrance here at the Statesboro Penny Baptist Church, if you look at numbers, and I think you can, at least partly, to be a part of the measure of the fruitfulness of a ministry, then I would say Brother Bill's ministry here is most fruitful. As far as numbers and growth of the church, in those 12 years, this local church grew more than under any other ministry. And that's not any acclaim Brother Bill would want me to say. I know it's not, but the Lord used him. That's how I wanted to say it. And we're so thankful that he can be back with us. And I believe the Lord has placed this time in our lives that Brother Bill could be with us through this pandemic era that we could see and that we could rejoice in God as never before. So may the Lord bless. Thank you for joining us. Uh, continue, I say. Uh, encourage us all to pray and invite somebody to join in uh, with this time, this very special time, special time of worship together. Thank you very much.
I truly am very thankful to the good Lord for the privilege of being back at the Statesboro Primitive Baptist Church again. I've, as I've anticipated this meeting and looked forward to it, and I've kind of gone back in my records and looked at some things that I had kind of forgotten over the years. Uh, the first meeting that I had as I came to preach at Statesboro was begun on Sunday, I think it was Sunday, but it began on May the 8th of 1972. And uh, I just rejoiced in the goodness of the Lord. I believe at that time, according to my records, the Lord added six members to the church. And I just rejoiced in His hand, and goodness, and grace to all of us. And then five years later, in 1977, I did come to Statesboro to be the pastor of this good church. And we had so many happy times together in those 12 years. They were wonderful years for our ministry. And we will never forget the blessings the Lord bestowed in that time in our life. And... Uh, the love that developed between us and the members here and people in this community and in this area, this city, still lasts and linger in our hearts today. And I believe as long as God gives us life, we're going to be able to rejoice in those that we love. This will be a different kind of a meeting. I would normally expect to look out and just see all of you in the pews. But of course, the circumstances of this day and time uh, will not allow us to do that. But yet, I see so many faces in my mind's eye and know about where you sit. And uh, there is a great joy in just knowing that while I am here trying to preach the Word of God, you are in your home or wherever, wherever you might be, and you're praying for this service, and you're praying for the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I hope the Lord will bless us in this meeting, bless our time together to glorify Him, and just give us joy and gladness in our heart. In a troubled time, when sometimes we're caught up in the fear of all that's going on, but just then to come to the Word of God and find the peace that passes all understanding. I'm going to be talking to you, the good Lord willing, this morning from a, a subject that I think is important for us to study and understand. Jesus Christ, our substitute, I don't know how much thought and consideration you might have given to that subject in the Bible, but the Lord has laid it on my heart and my mind, and I'm going to try to study it a little with you in the Word of God. This sermon will be a little different from the normal approach to my sermons. I'm actually going to lead your attention to three main passages that we will look at together. If you have your Bibles close by, you can turn to these places and you'll be able to see the Word of God as I try to share it with you. 
So uh, the first one is going to be from the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And uh, I will read in your hearing in just a few minutes, verses 4 through 14. But if you would, would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Our Father in heaven, I do thank you for the wonderful privilege of prayer. Lord, we've come to you so many times in the light of the day and in the dark of the night. We have leaned upon your everlasting arms. And Lord, we are so thankful you allow us to come to you as our loving Heavenly Father in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful, Lord, you're a God who does hear and answer prayer. We don't always know what we need, but you do. So Lord, in this series of services, I pray that you will bless your word to the hearts of your people. That you will revive our hearts and spirits and stir within us through your inspired word. And make it a blessing to us that will strengthen us for days or weeks or months to come, however long we may need it. And Father, help me to preach about your darling son, Jesus. Help me to tell your children how wonderful he is. Help me to share some thoughts, Lord, that might lift up their spirits, strengthen their faith, and encourage their hope. Because we are looking, dear Father, at thy only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and realizing that he is eternal and we are not what we do realize is that however long you may give us life on this earth, He is always present. And when this journey has ended, heaven is waiting on us. Thank you, Lord, for such a blessed hope in Jesus. Help us now to glorify Him, to praise Him from our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am talking to you about Jesus Christ. And I will be in each service. <clears throat> and I want you to see in uh, this day's message that He is our substitute. <clears throat> and I want us to understand what it means for Jesus to be our substitute. It means that when one person steps up to replace another, whatever the event might be, and one illustration, very basic and simple, is that there are times when teachers cannot be with their classes. And they will ask someone else to come and fill their place while they're not able to be there. And they say, I'll have a substitute who will come and be with you tomorrow. We have a substitute. We have someone who can fill our place and do for us what we could not ever have done for ourselves. And His name is Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Now this particular passage I have on my mind to read right now 
is going to kind of help us get our hearts and minds fixed on just how Jesus is our substitute. This is the doctrine of the substitution of Christ. Uh, in this particular passage, Abraham, father of the Jewish nation, was told that it would be the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His son Esau, I mean, his son Isaac has been born, and he's come to love him very much. And God comes to him one day and says to him, I want you to take your son Isaac. I want you to carry him off to a distant mountain. I'm going to show you where it is. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now I've heard people talk about that and kind of try to outline how Abraham must have felt. I know it couldn't have been a very good feeling. But somehow in my heart, I think Abraham took it better than I would have. We find that on, in the fourth verse it says, and this is Genesis chapter 22, then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass. Now listen to this very carefully. And I and the lad, that's Isaac, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. He's saying that I'm going to take Isaac. Carry him up on that mountain. I'm sure those young men that were left behind probably didn't have an idea about what was going to go on. But the point I want you to get is that Abraham said, we're going up the mountain, but we're coming back down the mountain too. Now the only way that I can imagine in my heart he could have thought that is expressed in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the great faith chapter. And he was told, we are told in the 19th verse, he accounted that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And that's why I think that Abraham probably took it a lot better than I would have taken it, because he understood. You see, back in the 15th chapter, God had carried Abraham out one night and told him to look up at the stars in the sky. And could he count them? No, of course he couldn't number them. But God told him, he said, he made a promise to him that I'm going to give you a son, and through that son, there'll be a people as numerous as the stars of the sky. Now, how's God going to do that if that very son was taken on a mountain and offered as a sacrifice and left as a dead body up there? I believe that Abraham understood that the God that I serve, if He wants me to offer his son, my son to Him, I don't understand it. But if it's His will for me to do it, and He's made me a promise, my God's not going to fail in His promise. And this boy will come back down the mountain with me. Because if God has to, God will raise him up. I'll take his life, and God will raise him right back up and he'll come down with me. And verse 6 says, And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering, the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, 
And they went, both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? I hope you'll remember these words of the 8th verse. Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together. Have you ever thought about that? God's going to provide himself a lamb. And I'll tell you who it is. It was Jesus. Because Jesus is called the Lamb of God. It wouldn't happen for a long time, but God did it. Isaac didn't understand it. Perhaps Abraham didn't. But when John the Baptist saw Jesus, first chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then down in the 36th verse with exclamation, Behold the Lamb of God. God did provide Himself with a Lamb. Verse 9 says, They came down to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar. I built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to lay his son, slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Now here's the principle of substitution. That Christ would be our substitute just as that ram was a substitute for Isaac. Isaac lived because the ram took his place. The ram died that Isaac might live. That's substitution. One more verse, very important one. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Now, I believe, I have no way to prove this, but I believe that in that place where Abraham took that ram and offered it as a substitute for Isaac, in the close vicinity of that area, almost 2,000 years later, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, would die 
in that proximity. That's what I understand. And I can't prove that. But I'm not the only one who understands and believes that. Golgotha was the Hebrew name for the place where he died. Calvary is the Greek and Latin equivalent. We often, as Christians, use Calvary. And we call it Mount Calvary. Although, as I understand it, and the best I can determine, it wasn't all that high. Maybe it, at the tallest, about half a mile high. Can't be sure of that since I've never visited there. But I can tell you, the Lord sent His Lamb, Jesus, and He there became our substitute. Now the second passage <clears throat> that I want to share with you is Isaiah chapter number 53. And I'm going to begin reading again at verse number 4. There's an interesting thing that I've observed about it, and I'm sure many of you may have observed it as well. The book of Isaiah's prophecy has 66 chapters. Guess how many books of the Bible there are? 66 books in the Bible. So there is seemingly some correlation between the prophecy of Isaiah and uh, the Bible as a whole. But now we're on the subject of Jesus Christ as our substitute. So beginning in this 53rd chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, verse 4, he wrote, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now listen. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And that's our problem with sin in our lives. We want to go our way. We're like sheep. God's sheep. But we're like sheep going astray. Going everyone in his own way. And that was a path of sin for all of us. And the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. You see, that's Jesus being the one who is our substitute. The one who was wounded for us. Who was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we're healed. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He, is ta he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, Listen now. For the transgression 
of my people was he stricken. That's because he was our substitute. And he could suffer all of this in your place and mine. And I'm so thankful to God that he did. Now, I'm sure there's someone who, as I read that passage, says, well, how do you know it was written about Jesus Christ? How can you say with any sense of authority that the one who was wounded wasn't Isaiah or someone else? But I have Bible, Scripture, and thus I have authority in the truth. In the book of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, God, by the Holy Spirit, comes to a man named Philip. I'll begin our scripture reading at verse 26. And I hope this will settle the matter in all our hearts. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. That man evidently embraced the Jewish faith, belief in the great God of the Jews, and he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's a man of means and importance. He's not having to drive his own buggy, so to speak. There's someone who is driving for him. It says he was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Esaias the prophet. That's what that Ethiopian eunuch was doing. He didn't have to drive uh, the chariot. He just sat there going home. But having been there to worship, he has taken the word of God. And when it says here, Esaias, it's the New Testament form of the Old Testament word Isaiah, the prophet. And that's what he's reading. Verse 29 says, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, now, at first, God sent an angel, and the angels told him where he is to go. And he gets down there, and the Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, tells him what he wants him to do. Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran. You know, I don't know how many times I've read this over the years, but I never noticed that. He ran. When Spirit of God says, go join yourself to that chariot, he took out after it. He ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah and said, here's a question he asked him, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I, except some man should guide me and he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now let's notice this, please. Verse 32. 
The place of the Scripture which he read was this. And it's pretty fresh on your mind, so remember. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. That was the seventh verse I read out of Isaiah 53. Verse 33 says, In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. That's the eighth verse. The essence of the eighth verse. So what I'm telling you today is that this Ethiopian eunuch who has worshipped God and is going home and reading the Word of God and doesn't understand because he doesn't. He's going to ask a question that will prove that he does not understand what he's reading. Verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? You see, it was confusing to this eunuch. He didn't understand. He read the words, but they were not clear to him. So his question is, he didn't ask so much what it meant. The question was, who's he talking about? You know what the answer to the question is? The next verse. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. In other words, there's no other way. He preached Jesus in answer to that question. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. In all of those verses there in that passage, in Isaiah 53, they are all talking about Jesus. So I don't have to speculate on that today. I can simply tell you that Jesus was the one who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of His peace was upon us. Now, having given that as the basis of what I'm trying to preach to you today, I want to make a few more observations from Scripture. If Jesus Christ is our substitute, yours and mine, and indeed He is of all God's elect family in all nations, kindreds, tongue, and people, well, how does that work? How is it that God's only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, could leave heaven's glory and come down here and live and walk on this earth and become a substitute for you and me? How could He do that? Did you know God tells us in His Word how He did it? And I want to share some verses of Scripture. Paul said in Romans 5th chapter and the 8th verse, God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, listen, Christ died for us. That's how He did it. He became our substitute. He died for us. Because God loved us so much. And God in His mercy and grace and love would carry us one day home to heaven's glory. 
He sent Jesus to become our substitute. So we didn't have to pay that debt. We didn't have to go through that suffering. If we had, it really wouldn't have done us any good. It needed a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was the only one. So Jesus would be our substitute. Just as that ram. He had done no harm, no wrong. He's just caught in the thicket and can't get loose. But Abraham took him and put him on the altar, killed him and put him on the offering as a sacrifice and let Isaac live and go back down the mountain to be with him again. Just in that similar way, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And Jesus died for us. You know why I had to die? The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Not something you can earn. You can't get enough good works accumulated to acquire it. It's the gift of God. Eternal life is the gift of God. But it comes to us through Jesus Christ the Lord. Our substitute comes to us because of what He did in our behalf. He took our place. And when Paul said, God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What did Paul mean while we were yet sinners? Here's the fact. When Jesus died on the cross, Paul was already alive. See, I look back to Calvary. Paul was alive. He could look at Calvary. He was a Pharisee. But he knew he had sins. While he said we were in our life committing sins, Christ died for us. And what does all that mean? Well, it means what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. You think about that. Sin brings death. And the first death experienced by mankind was God made Adam, created him in his image and likeness, put him in the Garden of Eden, told him he could have everything but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But he ate of it anyway, and he died, not physically, but he died spiritually to the communion and fellowship of Almighty God and was driven out of the Garden of Eden. And the flaming sword was put there to keep him from re-entering. He later died a physical death, hundreds of years later. But first he died by sin to the fellowship and communion of God. We all did. We died 
to the fellowship of God and communion with God in our sins. But, you see, Jesus Christ, our substitute, came almost 2,000 years ago and suffered and bled and died. And He died specifically for our sins, Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 15.3. And he closed that verse by saying, according to the Scriptures. In other words, that's what the Bible says. The Word of God. And it is my understanding he was talking at that point about the Old Testament. So he's saying he died for our sins. You see, Jesus had no sins of His own. Not one. Never. Ever in His life. Never committed one. He never sinned by thought. He never sinned by word. He never sinned by deed and action. Peter said of him who did no sin, neither was guile in his mouth. And he who did not sin, and he who knew no sin, became your substitute and mine. And he died in our place, and he restored us to communion with God and fellowship with him. That's how we go to God today in His name. We can't go in our name. Because you see, we're the ones who broke the fellowship with a depraved and sinful nature and our actions sinful and our thoughts sinful and our words sinful. It took a perfect sacrifice to be our substitute. And Jesus was willing to do it for us. Paul wasn't the only one who understood this great biblical truth of the substitutionary work of Christ. Peter also understood it. Peter made a statement who his own self, talking about Jesus, Christ is the way. It's an interesting thing to me that Paul predominantly referred to Him as Christ. So it seems Peter does too. The anointed of God. And so when Peter is talking about Christ in that second chapter where he said he did no sin, as in the 22nd verse, the 24th verse said, who his own self, talking about Jesus, talking about Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin, dead to sin, Think about that. Before salvation, you know what? We were dead in sin. Because Christ saved us. Because Christ paid our debt. Because He was our substitute. And He took our place. He was wounded for us. He was bruised for us. He died for us and for our sins. then we are now dead to sin. We should not walk in it anymore. We shouldn't, but we do. But He paid for all our sins. And then He said in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ hath also suffered for sins. Yes, sometimes we do suffer for sins. Sometimes because of what we've done, we Bring the chastening hand of God upon us. He does it in love. But it comes sometimes. But Christ also suffered for sin. But here's the difference. 
the just for the unjust. That He might bring us to God. We can't get to God any other way, folks. He's got to bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And that's 1 Peter 3.18. Jesus suffered. They put a crown of thorns on His head. They mutilated His back with a whip. They drove nails in His hands and His feet and left Him hanging there on a cross for men to revile and make fun of. And Jesus took it all. He bore it all because He was our substitute. And he was willing to take it. And there on the old rugged cross on Calvary, wherever it's located, there's some debate. Some think just inside the wall of Jerusalem. Some say just outside. But does it really matter whether it was inside or outside the wall? What really matters is that he died on the old rugged cross for us. And we cannot imagine when we describe all those wounds of the flesh, we not, cannot imagine what it was for Him who knew no sin ever, had been in heaven with the Father and came down here and still knew no sin on this earth. But there on the cross, He became sin for us. There's no way we can imagine when he felt that awful ugliness of sin that he's taken from us, that he becomes part of. That sin that is now transferred, that he might die for us. When Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul was saying that whenever Jesus was nailed to the cross, Paul said, I was there. I was there because my sins were on Him and in Him. He became our sin. He bore our sin. And in His time, bowed His head, gave up the ghost and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he died. He laid down his life. He said, no man taketh it from me, but I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. And praise God, he did. Our substitute was Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ. He bore it all. He paid the debt we could not pay. I'm so thankful that I understand a little bit about what Jesus did for me. I know I won't understand it all till I'm in heaven's glory and I'll see it fully then. And I think that's why my praise there is going to be so much more perfect than it is here. Because I'll know it all then and I don't now. But I can say this as I close. If you understand this basic Bible truth 
that Jesus Christ is our substitute, then it ought to change the rest of our lives. It really should. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 6.20. I want to close with this verse. You're bought with a price. Therefore, therefore, because you've been bought with a price, because your substitute paid the price with His life, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are His. With our whole being, in other words, with every fiber of our being, with that spiritual part of us and the physical part of us, let us glorify God and let us glorify His Son, our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be my humble prayer. And we'll ask God for that blessing now if you'll join your heart with me in prayer. Our Father, I do thank You for such a wonderful substitute. I'm not worthy that He died for me and for my sins. And I suspect, Lord, that every heaven-born soul comes under the sound of this voice which say, I'm not worthy either. But that's how much He loved us, our substitute. It's what He did for us. Show us, Lord, how we may give You glory. Oh, Father, we hallow Your name, but that's not enough. Show us how we may live and give You glory and glorify Jesus, who is ever our substitute. I praise You. I praise You, Jesus. And ask it in your blessed and wonderful name above every name. And amen.